revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. I'm Rob Lee. Dom Griffin is here. And we're talking Kill Bill Volume 1. It's the 20th anniversary of this film. Let's watch it again. Not too long ago, I was quite the professional. My friends and I, we were the creme de la creme in an exclusive industry. And we all worked for this man, Bill. Then one day, I decided to leave, settle down, and start a new life. But when I tried to get out, they did me in. Don't you ever wake up. I guess they should have tried a little harder. So I suppose it's a little late for an apology, huh? You suppose correctly. Now it's kill or be killed. You have every right to want to get even. Get even? Even, Stephen? I would have to kill you. That'd be about square. And I choose kill. Mommy, I'm home. Hey, baby. How was school? One ticket to Tokyo, please. One way. That woman deserves her revenge. And we deserve to die. No kidding, I heard it was kind of hard. Silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. Yeah. Oh. Any more subordinates for me to kill? Let's watch it again. And uh, joining me today is um, the the lovely redhead Dom Griffin, film critic du jour. Just everything you got, everything. How's Thank it going? you. Really, really doing really good. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm stealing Ginger Valor now. Now all the all those people that get mad when they make redheaded characters black in movies are going to come for me on Twitter. Look, I, I have thoughts about that Superman anime thing, and Jimmy is like a wild boy. I thought he's usually a ginger, right? And he's like, you got like the wild, like, like fuckboy haircut. Like, what's what's good here? I think he was able to kind of like get away with it. Or maybe people weren't as mad because they were too busy being mad that they made like Lois Lane Korean or something. I think so. People are like, oh, no, that's the worst. That's bad. We got to we'll get to Black Jimmy later. <laughs> black. It's also like redundant. Black. Jimmy. <laughs> I used to tell people, it's like, look, don't 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 call black dudes named James Jimmy. It's it's super weird. I <laughs> good. Love those Jimmys. I bet you do. Uh, so as we start, we're going to talk about, um, you know, it's in this 20th, 20th anniversary. We're going to talk about um, Kill Bill Volume 1. And um, to kind of set us up a little bit, 
do you remember one? I'm, I'm going to do the, you know, sort of description of the movie real quick, but I want to get just just a little taste. When was the first time you saw the movie? Where were you at? What was happening? Oh, this is actually good. OK, so um, I was, a, you know, this, I was like 17, I think, maybe 16, 17. And um, I had just started getting really into movies around like 14, 15. So I was like still sort of like a level one, level two movie nerd guy. So obviously I died for Quentin Tarantino at the time. You know what I mean? That was my guy. Uh, and he hadn't made a movie uh, since I'd been like of age to go to his movies. You know, I'd seen uh, every movie, all three of them at this point. But uh, the, my relationship with this movie is that the screenplay for Kill Bill leaked onto the internet like before they were filming, I even think. It was just, it was just online. Uh, and I got my hands on it and I read it like obsessed. I've read it multiple times, you know, um, and it was all I, I, all, I, all I could tell was my my friends was like, there's this movie coming out. It's going to be so, oh, my God, so crazy, you know, and like other teenagers at the time weren't fucking that crazy about Quentin Tarantino to like to like care. Do you know what I mean? To that degree. Uh, but I distinctly remember going to see I don't remember what movie it is actually. So I guess I don't distinctly remember it. But the first time they aired the trailer in front of a movie that I was at for Kill Bill. And I was losing my mind because I'd read this. I knew everything that was coming. So seeing any of it visually was very cool. And there was a couple sitting behind me. And the girl was like, oh, like, look at this Charlie's Angels ripoff. And I, I was like, what the f like? Because I mean, hey, it, the average audience member who does, who's not Quentin Tarantino was not at this specific time, I think quite the, the cultural giant that he is now or even before this point. Right. He hadn't made a movie in years. Uh so sure, I guess if you didn't, if you weren't like a nerd, you weren't clued into all the things he was referencing, it might look a little bit like Lucy Liu was in it. I get, I kind of get the, this is the same year Full Throttle came out. So um, I was just like this fucking Philistine, you know, but um, <laughs> I, I, I saw it opening weekend. Like I went to the movies to see it and um, multiple times and uh, I, it was, I was just obsessive about this movie. Um, I, the last time I so I rewatched it today uh, before we started recording. And I, the last time I rewatched it was like 2018 because I periodically will just rewatch all of Tarantino's movies and then go and futz with my letterboxed rankings of his films and stuff. And the, my log note for this was like, it's so weird watching a movie that I loved like to death when I was 17 that I would have like taken bullets for. And I was watching in 2018. I was like, it's still cool. Like I, I felt, I felt nothing. I felt nothing about the movie. I was just like, I still like it. Like it's nice, but I, I felt like it was like a little death. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, this movie, I used to, I would have gone to war. I don't know what type of war would have <laughs> needed that, but if there was one, I would have, they wouldn't have been the draft. Me, I would have been there with bells on. Um, But yeah, it's, I can't believe it's been 20 years. It's insane to me. We're going to dive into it a bit more. And, and thank you for sharing that. It had been six years between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, it's a sizable sort of, sort of chunk. And um, so I was 18. When this movie came out. I could have popped in because it's a radar movie, pop in, go to theaters and all of that. Um, but I didn't, I was definitely a DVD culture guy. So mm, okay, yeah, popping over there to wherever, and that was what my checks were going to. All of my checks for my job, where my janitorial job, my terrible janitorial job, where it was going to wearing um Mecca, the clothing line, and mm -hmm. buying DVDs, but only like collector's editions. That was the, the way if I was on. And I'm very, you know, you, you know how it is. You like, I want to watch my thing first before anyone mm. else does. So, you know, I was kind of getting into some of the 
you know, Asian films and, and things of that nature. Like, I think I, I think I just got like Ichida Killer or something. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure, yeah. but I was, I was in, right? And I just remember it was one of those instances where, you know, I was like fledgling film nerd and my brother and dad were like, yeah, we want to watch this. Can we watch it first? Because I was just like fussing around doing something. So they ended up watching it and I can hear them. I'm upstairs, downstairs. And they're like, yo, this shit phony. And I'm like, I hate it. I hate them all. Because they're talking about all the wire work. They're like, this is bullshit. And you can just hear it. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the delay. <laughs> I'm mm. like, I hate it. But um, I, I, I dug this movie. And I think you're, you're right. I think we'll delve into a little bit more as far as the, the little death component of it. So for those who haven't seen it, here, here's the the quick synopsis, um, and and you know, keep me honest, you dumb, you know, as they say in those corporate meetings. If you, if you make up some bullshit, I'm gonna stop you. That's after, not what happens in the movie. After awakening from a four year coma, a former assassin wreaks uh, vengeance on a team of assassins who betrayed her. Kill Bill. Yeah, that's 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 the movie. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so. This movie is a October 10th release. So we're almost literally 20 years to the date. And, um, you know, director Quentin Tarantino, um, the genre I looked at on boxofficemojo.com, you know, it's on a enjoy. It's listed as the genre is ridiculous. Wire food, Japan heroin revenge assassin movie. That's what is listed as on there. Hyper specialized genre right there. Um, the mu- music in the movie, which is a, a, I think, a big part of the movie, um, Rizzo, um, Lost Ulrich, and Ennio Morricone. Morricone, yeah. Um, Miramax, they're now defunct, so you know they can jog off. Uh, and it's adapted from Lady Snowbird, and so it's not, it's not, it's not adapted. It's here's the thing, right? Tarantino's, uh, you know, all of his films are like, except for Jackie Brown, which is a direct adaptation of an Elmer Leonard novel. All of his movies are technically like original things, right? But they are very often heavily inspired by a bunch of old shit. Sure. You know, like Reservoir Dogs is heavily inspired by, um, I think the film's called like City on Fire, I believe. It's like a Chinese film. Um, this, like the loose premise for this is like very similar to Lady Snowblood. And then it's also very similar to a French film, The Bride Wore Black. It's very similar to like nine other fucking things. Because like that's the that's the Tarantino thing is, is the... I liked all this stuff and I'm going to push it all in one thing and I'm going to repackage it under it with my own flavor and then give it to you. You know, it sounded like Tarantino briefly there, by the way, every now and then it comes out. I, I, didn't, I didn't like it. I was like, this is the wrong. This is, I didn't, I don't, I don't know where it's coming from. I was waiting for you to put on woo wear and have a, okay. <laughs> hey, the next time we do a pod, I'll wear a dashiki <laughs> awkwardly. Like he did in the, that black exploitation documentary. I'll wow. do it. Uh, so the box office for this this flick, I believe, is a thirty million dollar budget. We don't get the marketing numbers, but it made a buck eighty one. So this is a pretty. Yeah, it was at movie. the time. At the time, I think it was his like highest grossing movie. I mean, his, his movies later movies would gross higher than this, obviously. But at the time, yeah, it was like actually successful. You know what's crazy about this too? Thirty. That's not a lot of money. You know what I mean? I mean, for like a big a big action movie, that's not a lot of money. I think it's more money than he'd had up to this point, but you, it, 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 it looks more expensive. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it look, it feels more expensive. Um, but I mean, it helps that he probably, you know, I mean, they're even at 30 million, I think they probably still did have like 
some budget stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, some issues with it, how how long filming I think took. Like I think some of the set pieces took a really long time to film. Yeah, we there is one bullet point in here about that. Um, so I want to talk about some of the film notes. And before we get into that, is there anything you want to add to sort of the introductory stuff? No, no, go ahead. Okay, cool. So in film notes, um, so so. <sighs> I guess spoilers. I don't, I don't, it's a 20 year old movie. Spoilers for a 20 year old movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Tarantino originally wanted to cast a Japanese actress to play Orenishi, which I, I love that. I, we'll talk about it. But mm-hmm. before casting began, he saw Lucy Liu's work in Shanghai Noon of all movies in 2000 mm-hmm. and immediately changed the character to Chinese Japanese American so Lucy Liu could play the part. I was like, hell yeah. She's good. I mean, she's so good in it. Like, he was right. Um, obviously the, the wreck thing, which became Halloween costumes because of the timing of this movie, uh, the bride's yellow outfit is definitely an homage to Bruce Lee in game of death, which was, Bruce mm-hmm. Lee. and, um, I believe he had a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar footprint on his chest in that movie, which is one of the funniest <laughs> things in that movie. <laughs> According to, uh, Tarantino and Uma Thurman and DVD commentary, the idea of doing Kill Bill actually was originally discussed back in like 1994 doing like mm. fiction so you're, we're talking like hey we're going to do this kung fu flick that's kind of like a 70s movie and it's going to take us 10 years to kind of get around to it uh yeah i mean i think you know it's it's funny too because uh you, you know i guess it's like a trivia bit but like essentially the the bride and the the all the people chose to kill and bill and all them like they sort of just sound like the fox force five gag from pulp fiction so you can sort of imagine it like riffing on that on set and then that just t- turns into something else. But yeah, I think he even said that um, he had started working on Inglorious Bastards before this, even before even before that. Yeah. And then like, you know, ended up taking some from his some things from his original conception of that for for this and then like had to completely rejigger it later. So like yeah, you can tell that he's essentially always has like seven folders open of I can't fit all my black exploitation stuff in this one. It can go over here. This stuff's too Western. We'll go over here, you know. So that's great. It's, I, and I and I think you know I rather have someone have sort of you know a thirty whatever year career, and do like I'm gonna do ten movies or whatever, and versus I'm gonna have multiple literal folders open on a flight, and I'm gonna say I wrote a season during a flight, and you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Just like I think, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think what happens to there's like there's ways to go about it right there's some filmmakers who just every time they have a new idea they try to go make a movie especially if they're like a writer director like a, like a nolan or like a paul thomas anderson or something especially also if they can get money to make a movie easily enough right uh and then you have people who maybe don't write their own stuff and they have to like develop projects with writers and producers over time and that can a long time between movies uh and then i think tarantino is essentially the only name guy who's obsessed with having a perfect filmography so like he he said he's written his last movie uh i believe he's casted it already but i don't think they can announce any of the deals because of the strike and the second the strike is over they're probably gonna start filming and that's gonna be his last movie ever and he seems like he's not gonna go back on it either yeah i mean you know it's 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 interesting like you know i i think of that as as a podcaster of like you know, I'm doing this, doing this for a pretty long time, but what does the end look like? Is there a static point where you kind of wrap it and you want to maybe do something else or maybe enjoy film from a different perspective? Like, I would imagine if you're a filmmaker and he's a film nerd, you know, the story and all of that stuff, right? 
you're watching something, I would imagine the same thing for you. You know, if you're watching something, you're like, I want to be able to be disconnected from it in that way. So I can kind of get back to enjoying these things to a degree. Yeah. And I think it's also like, you know, he's like, I got a kid, like, you know, I, 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 I'm, you know, being on a set for months on end and stuff. Also, though, I think for real, like it, it, I read his his uh, his his book, his like memoir thing, like memoir slash collection of essays that came out, and he taught every time he talks about a filmmaker's like bad last movie or two, he is so disgusted, like that someone would have made like this amazing career and these amazing movies, and then didn't hang it up in time, and they they left us with something that's a piece of shit. And I think the unfortunate side of that is like a lot of those movies, like the director's like last gasp movie, yeah, none of them are like great. But a lot of times they're really interesting. They're really fascinating and they take a lot of weird risks. And there's the, the part of me that understands that Quentin wants to wrap it up at 10. And there's a part of me that's like, you're kind of a fucking coward, aren't you? Like, <laughs> you're so fucking afraid you're going to make you, you probably could make four or five, six, seven more good movies or pretty good movies or even maybe one really bad movie that we watch forever that we're like that one time he fucking you know you if you miss the swing in baseball or whatever like that's all right you you didn't hit the ball but if you miss and the bat goes flying out of your hands and then crashes through a window that's kind of cool it's cool that you missed you know like and and we're never gonna get that from him because he's like nope uh we won the game i'm going home fuck it never playing again he doesn't want jordan on the wizards (laughs) yeah he doesn't want he doesn't want that and it's like still fascinating though it's interesting so and you know, and another thing, he's he's like sixty now as well. So yeah, like, he's a lot older. Gotta get out of here. I'm kind of done with this. My my hairline is. I can't keep dying this. <laughs> uh, but and, and the other thing, and that that sort of last point about the uh, I guess ideation around the movie, um, Uma Thurman came up with the um, the opening shot for the film of getting beat up and wearing a wedding gown. It's those are like you know upon rewatching it, and I watched the unrated cut because there's a, a kind of a big change in it. Um, and it, mm. and it's like, oh, okay, cool. That's what we're doing. So at the beginning of the fight scene with um, Oren Ishii and the bride, um, after Oren says in Japanese, hope you saved your energy, we know how this thing goes. Um, you know, you won't last five minutes. And she, she spoiler, she dies <laughs> like in four minutes and like 49 seconds or 59 seconds or something. I was like, all right. I'm here for it. That's a really, it's really hard to, I think, pull off those really good editing gags, but like, it's like a good one. That's, you know, it's like when albums, you know, like a, a song ends exactly like four minutes and 20 seconds or whatever the fuck, you know, it's, it's cute. It's like, yeah, this is a 69 minute second song. <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. I mean, the first few times I watched it when that, that sequence happens and basically, you know, her wig gets split as it were, I'm like, Hold on, what happened? I was I had to rewind it because I didn't Snatched. see it. Bald. <laughs> oh. <Yo. The> scalp. <laughs> Why did Trinity for two get here? <laughs> That's a good reference, right? Um, and I know a guy that owns another vehicle like this locally at a pie shop. You know a guy that owns a pussy wagon? Yes. <laughs> really literally. He would drop Does he go off- to prison? Like <laughs> I- he, he would bring produce to the pie shop. In a pickup truck that had that on there, I was like, "Did you make your own pussy wagon?" Nah, I I firmly believe that like uh, like I don't believe in like police profiling, Shit. but I think if you're a cop and you see someone in a pussy wagon truck, you're allowed to pick them up and just go test them against some rape kids out there or something. That that is not a normal person thing to own. I I will say the 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 pussy wagon has popped up in two other videos. 
Mm-hmm. Two music videos. It's a uh, the telephone video by Lady Gaga and Beyonce, and the Missy Elliott video. I'm really hot. So the Pussy Wagon has made its rounds in it's like pop, pop culture now. And this this is a great number. Um, do you have any? You you obviously do because you know everything. Uh, so you know there's a a budget line item like for swords and sword accessories. For this oh book. yeah, how much is it for this? <laughs> it's like sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> when you think about how much things cost on a movie set like if it, it, anything from a movie set if you break it down you're like really that much of that it's like well yeah we're making artifice it, it costs money um but 60 grand in swords is kind of tight it's, it's it, like yeah it's a good if you're gonna spend money on something right that that was my salary last year that was what i was making i was like you could have bought instead of instead of living and eating food and having a home you could have had all those swords i want to just get paid in swords i've been paid in donuts before but i want to get paid in swords now I'm ready for it. Did they just drop him off at your door? Like you go to the door, there's just uh, Sonny Chiba is outside with a sword. And he's like, here you go. Oh, that would be so. <laughs> like, Thanks, man. Cool. This job is great. Great benefits. I'd wear like the little bandana on my. That's why I shave my head so I go wear that. Uh, I want to be. I want to be his. Uh, Hell yeah. His uh, the guy brings the sake. <laughs> just yell at him in Japanese. That's the only reason I'm learning Japanese so I can yell at the ghost of Sonny Chiba. R.I.P. R.I.P. Indeed. Um, so this is one of the things I noticed that was a shift because I'd, I'd, I've seen the movie multiple times, but I hadn't seen it in the sort of unrated version. And it didn't throw me off. I was just like, oh, OK. So the the, the shift for to to black and white um, in that sequence where the bride is fighting the crazy 88. Mm, with, oh, yeah. No, it stays colored the whole time. Yeah. I was like, oh, OK. And apparently they, they made that change because of censors. It was just like mm-hmm. this is going to get NC-17 rating. I was like, this it, is cartoon it, violence. I, I was, you know, it's funny. I think about that every time I watch it because this time I watched it and I was like, because I haven't watched the unrated version in a while because I don't really care. Uh, 90% of movies that have unrated versions are just like longer and like worse, you know? Um, not to say that like I, I like the censors, but sometimes you're like, no, this is better. Sometimes limitations are good. Uh, but I love the timing on it. Like I love like her blinking for the colors to come back before the. It, goes to the blue period of the fight it's, it's so good i i dig it and and i think it's even this notion and i always and, and maybe i i i don't know but when it comes to like filmmakers that kind of are like forward thinking of hey let's just do this just in case we want this to be on like regular tv one day and have that new generation of people that'll discover it i mean for me um, this is why, like, sort of my personal filmography or watchography, if you will, is kind of disjointed and out of order because it's like I see things when they come on TV or at least when I was younger. So, you know, I didn't see Ghostbusters a- until, like, I've already seen Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that was my Ghostbusters. Very common. Yeah, this other one is better. And it's like, nah, I like this one because Bobby Brown is in it. I mean, that, that is one of the things that makes Ghostbusters do better than Ghostbusters is all of Bobby Brown's parts. That song is great. It's I had that I had that kind of issue as a kid or where like I would watch movies like for, t- you know, the TV versions all the time and forget just like the commercial interruptions or whatever. But just the the fact that a lot of movies had pan and scan where it's like, you know, a movie was shot in like a wide aspect ratio and then it doesn't really fit a television. and People don't want to see the letterboxing. So it's like you'll just. Uh, crop off the frame and then you know manually move it back and forth as necessary to get all the information in and so when i was younger i I remember thinking when i started learning more about filmmaking i was like why do so many movies have this like really awkward 
like jilted camera movement. And then someone had explained to me like, oh yeah, they, no one did that. That's the that's like the TV version. And then I'd watch a movie without it, and I was like, holy shit, there all this stuff was in the frame at the same time. Fuck, you know. So that's that's how TV movies fucked me up. I, I had to look this up earlier because I remember reading it when I was like, you know, like you were you were touching on earlier. You know, I was looking at every possible detail. I had the soundtrack torrented everywhere. I was just like Santa Esmeralda, let's do it. And so I looked this one up before, um, and I wasn't quite sure. I knew the number wasn't accurate, but Crazy Eighty Eight is just a cool name. It's not yeah. eighty eight dudes or chicks. It's like forty. <laughs> I, what's What's really okay? So like, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but what's really funny about that is like. If you've ever read a Quentin Tarantino screenplay, um, reading screenplays, unless you're like really into wanting to become a screenwriter, is actually not very fun uh, because, uh, you know, a screenwriter, a screenplay on its own is not like its own like literary object. It's like a blueprint for a movie. So a lot of it's just like constructions. Do you know what I mean? Um, but there's a handful of writers who write screenplays in a way where they're fun to read. And Quentin's one of them. And uh there's so many things he does in his scripts. There are asides that like you don't. So in a script, right? Like when they teach you screenwriting, they tell you like, hey, don't like David Mamet in his book on directing film always says like in a screenplay, don't write anything that can't be filmed. So like you would not write like we cut to Jim on a bench. He's the kind of plucky guy who like, no, 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 we can't film that. We have to get that across another way. Jim is on a bench. He's wearing a white shirt. It's dark out. You know what I mean? Like it's just visual cues. Um, so generally, if you read a screenplay and someone tries to shoehorn in stuff, they should be telling you another way. It's like a bad screenplay. Uh, Quentin does that shit all the time, though. And it's like really fun uh, because it's stuff that is not going to end up in the movie and like actually doesn't matter. But he knows it because he came up with this stuff. And where else is he going to put it? So, um, like, I think in the, in the script for Kill Bill, when they introduced the crazy 88, he has a whole aside about how, like, look, it's not actually 88 of it. It's just a cool name. Like, you know, just in case you were thinking that as you were reading it, um, and, um, in, in, uh, Django Unchained, when, when they introduce, um, Sam Jackson's character, like the big uncle, Tom, uh, Steven, I think is his character's name, uh, in the script uh, description of the character, it doesn't matter that you know what he looks like. All you need to know is that he's sort of like an untrustworthy, like mincing character. And he compares him to, uh, the actor Basil Rathbone. Um, and he just says he's the, the Basil Rathbone of house niggers basically in the script. And obviously, you know, Quentin should not have done that or whatever. But I remember when I read it, I was like, that's a crazy, super wild thing to write in a screenplay. But also, I immediately understood the character. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, you know, that's uh, questionable shorthand, sure. But I was like, yeah, that's basically. And then I'm sure Sam Jackson looked at that and was like, oh, I can do that. Okay, boom. You know, off to the races. It, it's, so, it's, it's the thing. And that's great. Like, you know, it's the, it's the thing where it's like, I don't agree with it, but also it was effective what you did there, you know, like, yeah, it's like, well, objection. We'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> you know, in a court movie, like, we'll allow it, but watch your step counselor. You know, like, you know, <laughs> just don't Tarantino. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, you know, I'm always, especially when it comes to like movies with a lot of deaths in it, um, because, you know, I, I think it's important um, because, you know, we, we run into things like, and, and, and this is a conversation for a different time, but I think the point is a salient where there are things from the past that we just don't do anymore mm -hmm. or we kind of cut down. Like, for instance, where's the erotic thrillers? They don't exist anymore. Brian DePaul. Yeah, unfortunately. So I'm always looking at certain things like sex scenes and looking for things that feel kind of problematic and looking at them in sort of new eyes. But I'm also looking for the number of deaths in a movie because 
you know, that's a thing, you know, the, 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 the Rambo scale, if you will. So the, the deaths and kill bill, they, they have a wide spectrum. Some people said, oh, it's only 41 deaths. Some people said it's like 95. And most people agree it's like 62. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty high for this movie. I don't know if they're like, I don't know if the kill count in the kill bill movies is like John wick level, because in those things, he's just like, they're all headshots. So like you can fit in, in a movie, a lot of headshots as you've seen in all four of the John wick films, but here, like the way she kills people is like all more labored. It's not like a clean, simple, like she's not like Rambo. You know what I mean? Like throughout the movie, she actually struggles even, even though like she's a badass, we know she's going to beat everybody. Like we know that otherwise the movie wouldn't happen. It's still like that, uh, that big crazy 88 fight is constructed in such a way where like there's doubt or like there's struggle. Like, you know, this is not easy for her, you know? And I think that's, and it's very important uh, when it comes to like, deaths on in movies and, and violence and stuff i think i mean this is a thing that's played into you know, his whole career the thing about how many people die in his movies how many people die grisly violent deaths and uh this is like the first movie where a fair amount of the violence really is on screen like you see a knife stab people and stuff like that yeah. uh when people reference all the most fucked up parts of his other movies it's like you don't see that though like uh you don't see that happening in frame that's you sometimes you see someone looking at something and you know what it is but like the guy getting his ear cut off in reservoir dogs that happens out of frame all these things are heavily implied which makes it almost worse because your mind's filling in the blanks uh and this one is a little bit more like nah we see her stabbing people <laughs> like we see her throw a knife into somebody's chest you know we see her pluck somebody's eye out and shit that you know just the when we get to this part where you just see limbs flying off i'm like this is great this is just it turned into like, you know the well i i guess that's one of those things in the, the that ilk of films but did you ever see the um unrated version of like the wolverine where like it just turns into a horror movie briefly when he's just like lopping off limbs oh yeah i think i actually have yeah I was like, oh, this is the thing I've been asking for for however many years. Oh, those claws do cut off the flesh. <laughs> um, so the titular Bill, and I like that word, titular is a great word. Uh, mm -hmm. his, he's he's not seen physically like much, if if really at all. You see like glimpses of him, you see his hand and shit when he's holding the sword. And it's a key component that he's not really seen, you know. Like the bride is like going after something. We don't know what it is. We don't have her name from the majority of the movie. We actually get in the second movie, even though it's a kind of a little trolley thing, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, originally, Tarantino wanted Warren Beatty to play Bill, mm -hmm. which <laughs> I just see Warren Beatty at the Oscars <laughs> just fumbling through it. You know, I remember so like um, during the like this was one of the first movies where like I like doggedly follow the production in the news and stuff like on, on on like movie sites and shit and i remember that was like a, an early thing was that originally it was going to be warren Beatty, and i believe the wikipedia doesn't have it this way but i believe the story was that he was developing it he was like meeting with warren and then when they were talking about things he wanted from the character quentin would keep saying things like you know kind of like david carradine and finally warren Beatty was like hey hey quentin he's alive like just fucking ask david carradine because he was just like okay like i don't want to make a movie with you if you're going to spend the whole time telling me to act like someone that you could call. So like, I think that's what ended up happening. It was like, cause I think baby said like, Oh, like he didn't want to go to China or whatever the fuck it was. But I think it was just literally, he was like, why would I make this movie? Why would I show up and have a, a man I could be who, who, who could be my son. Tell me every day to act like the fucking David Carradine. And I'm Warren Beatty. 
I'm Warren Beatty. I'm not taking that shit. Fucking Dick Tracy, you motherfucker. Yeah, right? Like, come on now. It's just like, it's the equivalent when you you see like these toxic relationships. It's like, man, go to your other bitch then. It's like, as a simply <laughs> Warren Beatty really hit him with, yeah, go talk to your other bitch, basically. <laughs> Um, and this this is sort of the last thing that touches on one of the things you you, you teased earlier, um, some of the production stuff. And so for specifically for the the fight scene at the long fight scene at the uh, House of Blue Leaves, where it's just dozens of folks are losing limbs and things of the sort. Tarantino didn't want any like CGI. It's a lot of wire work in there and, you know, practical effects. And this section of the movie was supposed to be two weeks. It turned into eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's there's your production thing. It's like when you just multiply it like multiple weeks. And the thing is, like, I think sometimes people who don't know a lot about how film productions go when they hear stories like that, they always think it's like cool. It's like, oh, they were like really working hard to make it happen. It's like if, if you plotted out something for two weeks and it takes uh, two months, that is a significant issue, you know, probably like budgetarily. But I believe. It, it was like twofold. One is that like he was being kind of a perfectionist in this movie because he saw something specific in his head and wanted it to to be that way. And also, he's never directed an action movie before. Sure. He's never made a movie of this scale or this type. And uh, that probably has a lot to do with it. Like sometimes people ask about like, why do certain directors get certain big budget jobs? And like their movies aren't even that good. It's like sure there's probably like a quality thing you could say about some of these filmmakers but a studio looks at it and goes oh you've 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 run other hundred million dollar sets and you came in on time and under budget we can figure out how to make it good you know they they, they sort of think of that way like hey you were able to it's like a job like you have some people who are who become bosses and it's like that guy's an asshole it's like yeah but he's probably in some way demonstrated that he can do this level of whatever it is it would be great if he was also a nice person, but sometimes, you know, people choose and they, they choose uh, dependability, reliability or whatever. And I, and I think that that, you know, and I, and I know you've had your your superhero fatigue for quite some, some some time, but it's the the thing that I see is very overt now where you just hear the business part of showbiz. And I'm for me and, you know, because I definitely listen to your reviews. I'm a fan of your stuff. And, you yeah. know, that's why I have you on here. Um but it is one of those things where I'm always like, can we just be happy that it got made and it was made decently, if not good, versus, well, it didn't make the money we were projecting, so we're not going to have it happen. We're not going to have a sequel. We're not going to do this. And I understand that that's always a part of it, right? But sort of the challenge that I encounter is when people who aren't like in the business side of things, it's just like, how many billions do you need? And I, and I think us coming off of seeing two strikes happen simultaneously, mm-hmm. that's a part of that conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, something I thought about a lot uh, on this watch, because I I just I just watched, I spent the last few days before this, I watched the entire Friday the 13th franchise nice. um, in order, which was mind-numbing and interesting. Uh, <laughs> it was it was an experience. So I threw this on, I've been watching nothing but horror movies for like several days. And I had seen a couple of horror movies at the end of the tail thing that were all from like the early 2000s to mid 2000s to the end of the 2000s. And I had this like insect kind of revulsion, like when you hear a fly near your ear, because I just kind of fucking hate the way movies looked then in some of the movies. And they just look too like clean and like what they just look, they look weird to me, basically. 
and watching Kill Bill again, I was like, oh, this came out in 2003. And I started to think about other movies that came out in 2003 and what they look like now. And a lot of movies from 2003, if you put them on now, like they look like dog shit. Like you watch Daredevil, and that was a movie that I loved when it fucking came out. And that movie looks like dog shit now. Um, I happen I happen to be a big fan of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. I actually like those two films quite a, quite a bit. But if you watch them now, they look fucking weird. Kill Bill doesn't look like a movie that came out in 2003. It's like kind of timeless, obviously because of all the heavy influence from the past. Uh, and that, in a way, kind of felt nice because I was like, oh yeah, like this is a movie that's kind of it's it's never gonna feel weird. It's never going to look weird to me. It's always going to kind of be like this existed in this kind of like timeless place, you know. And that's a. And it that's also a, feels like the like the last of its. They didn't make a lot of fucking action movies that had thirty million dollar budgets or whatever that had this level of like, uh, like clear artistic vision. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't. And they don't. They also don't make them anymore, like at all. That's that's a that's a thing where like I like watching a good action movie, like you know. I've I've we I look at the movies that you and I have done right. And this is mm-hmm. this is a lot. This this is you know you, you give yourself a pat on the back for this. The movies that we've done are in my class of my favorite movies. The ones that you and I have done together. Those are in my class of like no. These are in my like top. I need like a careful hand on this. I need a careful light skin red headed hand on this one. And that, that's that. that's what it is. And that's you know it's kind of that. And you know you're you're right. When I'm looking for in action movies like these these sort of rules that you have to have for the the movie to actually get the backing that it needs whatever that backing looks like whether it's financial whether it's support from the the the, the studio what have you it's like well you know we can't have it rated r and if it is rated r it has to do this and so on it's just like yo is this guy blicking people off like what are we doing like yeah it's there's i mean the thing is with the forces that i'm that we're discussing we're already at play in 2003. Like, it's not like this is a, a fully new thing. Like, from, you know, like the 80, whenever the studios all became like, uh, went public and became like corporations that had shareholders, uh, you know, that's when we moved into the era of every year you need to gross more than you grossed last year because you have to, you have a fiduciary responsibility to get your shareholders the most value for their investment. And there's a variety of ways to do that. But most people treat it like gambling. And it's like the only way we can actually guarantee making billions is if we spend some billions and then we'll get <laughs> a lot of billions. Like movie studios basically treat it like poker or just, like, just keep going all in. Just keep going all in and then you'll double it. It'll be fine. <laughs> you know? And then they get hit with, oh, that didn't double it? Oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you can spend half a billion dollars and squander it all. Like that's, that's that you know, sometimes you want to place a couple of smaller bets to kind of balance those ones out, but they don't do that. It's just like, okay, we need to spend this much on the film, this much on the marketing, which means we need to do this, this, and this, and this algorithm tells us that this will work. And like, those things are not always accurate. You know, I'm I'm a data guy and you're right. And, you know, to go back to one of the things you touched on earlier, before we move into these questions and thoughts, it's the studio, not the filmmakers. It's the studios taking those swings with the bat and hitting the, the glass. <laughs> They're the ones missing. Because I mean, and the thing is, and you know, I get it. You know why? Because like, if I have $150 million and I'm going to give to you to do something, probably going to follow you around while you do it the entire time. I'm going to be like, all right, so do you really need this crane? Does the shot really need a crane? Like, you know what I'm saying? Because I want to I make sure like where my money is being well spent, right? Um, 
But, you know, we did used to have people who trusted filmmakers. I mean, it's funny, too. This is Kill Bill is a movie that was like shepherded by like Harvey Weinstein, who was notorious about cutting things up and and cutting money funding and shit like that. Martin Scorsese in his uh, recent GQ thing talked about how Gangs of New York made him want to quit making movies, period, because dealing with Harvey Weinstein was so demoralizing. He's like, you're, I'm Martin Scorsese, and every day this motherfucker's being like, do you really need this? Do you really need this? Yeah, I do. Bitch, yes. You know, and um, I, so, I mean, the, the fact that Quentin actually made out like a bandit with this movie, and it made money, and all this different stuff is like kind of a miracle. Yeah. I it, it, On a Weinstein note, real quick, uh, I've I joked with my, my girl about this. I was like, I wish I was a filmmaker then, just so I could just, I guess, like, I can show you what a bully looks like. Just, let's just, let's just have a sumo fight. Let's just, have, he, you know? he is a dude who, like, obviously, there are a lot of bad people in Hollywood and fame that you want to see get stomped out. But Harvey in particular, <laughs> like, should have gotten stomped out. And they should have made a movie about it and released it in, in like 3D and IMAX of just like various people just stomping him out you know they, they could have gotten that into like his his sentencing that would have been really cool but you know we live in a, a humane society i guess give him the uh the kubrick email <laughs> it's like fuck you very much we're gonna have a knife fight at a ballpark at 2 a.m you wear black <laughs> all right um so here, here's some questions and, and thoughts that i have and you know feel free to to throw yours in because mm-hmm. we have them um so could this be, you know, like I know there was talk about like a third movie and all of that stuff and it got some attention and then not really and whatever. Could this in terms of finality, could this or what feels like finality, I suppose, with the Vernita Green story and all of that, could there be a a, a limited short run sort of thing, uh, um, a comic, an anime, because that's in the movie? You know, he... I know that they've gone back and forth over the years about this as a possibility. And I think that for a bit, he was, he, there was like two things Quentin was like very close to in terms of his final movie. One of the things he was genuinely considering was remaking Reservoir Dogs, mm. like ending his career with his first movie kind of. And I think he was going to do it like with an all female cast or something like that, but he was going to just do it again. Like what, what's it going to look like if I made that now that I'm older. And the other one was like, you know, he's like, if I was going to make one more movie connected to an old movie, it would be Kill Bill 3. It would be it would be that because uh, he had the story kind of loosely worked out and stuff. My only issue with it is that it's been 20 years of people doing conjecture about what that story would be like. And I don't I as a result, I have no hunger to see it. Right. Like, it would it be cool for like that actress to be grown up to be Vernita's daughter? And then like the actress that played uh, B.B is like grown and still an actress she played she played uh steve jobs daughter in the steve jobs movie that michael fassbender was in uh but if he did it it would not be her it would probably be uma thurman's actual daughter my who yeah. looks just like her you know um like it, yeah it would be it would be like you know that's how it would be but i'm like i don't know that i need that he i have seen the things where he says that even though he's not gonna make any more future films that doesn't mean he can't do tv that doesn't mean he can't do mini series stuff and but i don't i don't i don't think he's gonna do this you know what i mean and i know a lot of people want it and they think they want it i don't this actually would be a good example of why i don't think he's a coward because like this could be something that like would be really embarrassingly bad and he would be like oh yeah remember when i made an 11th movie and it was kill bill 3 and it fucking sucked and then now anytime people see kill bill they think about how shitty kill bill 3 was so like i get it i understand 
it's the the Wonder Woman eighty four effect. And yeah, they, like, do you want that? And it's like, okay, I get it, you know. So, um, so this is a quick one I have for you, and I I, I know what my answer is. Mm-hmm. But I want to get your answer. Can you wiggle your big toe or use your upper body strength to pull you into the pussy wagon? Oh, you mean like if this was me? If I had been a coma victim uh, who was also uh, raped multiple times uh, and had like a plate in, in, in my head? Probably not. No, I I don't even know if I would have pulled off killing the guy with the with the door. I was I was watching that scene again and I was like, I was imagining myself like with no limb control or whatever. And I was like, man, I'm not I don't have. I don't have that level of determination. That's actually like those parts of the movie when she's first regathering her strength do make her like the most badass because you're like, damn, she fucked this dude up. She can't even get up. You know what I mean? Like she just woke up from like a coma and she's already like, let me bite this motherfucker's aorta, you know? So he bit Adam Sandler's homeboy's face off. Because <laughs> I realized, I was like, that's who that dude is. You were big- that guy. Yeah. He's one of the many Adam Sandler repertory players. Uh, this is my favorite question I had. Mm. What snake would you want to add, and you being the snake, by the way, to the deadly viper assassination squad divas? Uh, <laughs> which snake would you want to add? May I suggest the West African night adder? The, the did you go adder? look up a bunch of fucking snake names? I fucking did. <laughs> I have I have more. I have more. The puff adder, the Liechtenstein night adder, which would probably be me because of the art thing, or um. If you want to go Maryland, you can be the Eastern Copperhead or the Hognose Snake. But you know what? I think I have it. I think oh I have it. Oh my god! I know it's going to be some wild boy shit. This is me and you here. We got King Snake, and then we have Eastern Milk Snake. They both look the same. One's poisonous. Uh, one is not. Figure it out, motherfuckers. That actually, if we were assassins and we were like a duo, that was would be our names, and then be like, which one's going to kill you? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Fucking, I don't know. I don't know. Both it's the like the, the the thing where it's like one man cannot tell cannot tell a lie, the other man whatever. <laughs> like, uh, you know, earlier when you mentioned the, the snake thing, I thought you were just talking about the fact that there's actually snakes in like Kill Bill Volume Two, <laughs> and I thought that you just liked snakes enough that you would have had like I wish they had gotten this kind of snake, and I think it would have looked cool. I completely forgot that they're named after snakes, so I was like, I'm, I guess I'm curious. I don't know what kind of snakes I would have used in that scene. So like, I'm really glad that it was not that. That would have been very weird for me. I I, I felt really good looking that up earlier. <laughs> I mean, uh, this motherfucker really went Animal Planet over here. Oh, a deep snake. <laughs> like in, what was it like? Those magazines used to sell when we were kids, like the zoo zoo yeah. books. Oh yeah. yeah, there would have been like a, a zoo books on snakes. I mean, I used to we we um somehow got like the Encyclopedia Britannica and those in our basement, and me and my brother just hung out in the fucking uh, animal part of it. It's like yo, oh, the, the, the original the original wiki hole, right? Oh, <laughs> You're just in the basement, just learning shit, flipping through pages of random letters. So this is a question, and I think you know the answer because you you read mm-hmm. the script. Obviously, is Bill fucking everybody? I believe. It is heavily implied that, yeah, Bill is just like swing this dick everywhere, which makes his hypocrisy at being jealous like extra, you know, mm-hmm. serious. You know, I just, this just popped in my head, but I kind of realized if you if you had to make Kill Bill over again now, who would play Bill? And I was like, it'd just be future. Oh, my God. I want that, actually. Like, I don't I don't know that what the rest of that looks like, and I'm not going to put that in anyone's minds. But I just I just think about how many how many future lyrics you could put over pictures of David Carradine as Bill and it would make sense. 
like the entirety of like my collection. And you're like, yeah, I can see Bill singing along to this song and being like, yeah, man, it's that shit. I want it. Uh, it, it one other in in the script. So I just kind of want to the thing about the the, the the script is when the script when I read it, there was no the the split thing. It was just one big ass movie, right? And I was young enough to not think that was weird because it's a it was a really big script. And then they, you know, obviously decided to split it in two. So when I saw volume one, even though I knew what happened in the script, the movie itself was still, I was like, where are they going to end it? Because the movie was not written in a way where there was a clear middle. It's no linear. Uh, like I kind of figured it would end around when, when she, you know, killed Aran or whatever. But when, when I saw it in theaters, that whole scene where um, the, the French girl or whatever is like t- talking to bill and they reveal that um Beatrice, you know, the baby's still alive uh in the script you don't you don't find that out until you see her like near the very end oh. like in the original version of the movie you would not learn that as the, as the audience member until she learned it um here they leave that to be the thing you think about when you leave the theater i remember actually getting goosebumps like oh my god the baby's like i knew the baby was still alive but like the way they played it actually made it feel like new information to me who already knew that right um and then you know it 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 makes volume two you go in knowing something she does not know uh and like it completely gives it this very different character and it's really cool so that's that's like my favorite the only two, yeah, the only two things that matter to me about the script changes is one that that was really neat. That was like a really cool, fun thing if you were already clued in. And then um, that to this day, I still have, I still, for- so it was so burned into my mind. I still forget that they're they cut all this stuff with Gogo Yubari's twin sister because in the script, there's a whole extra sequence where then she then has to fight Gogo's twin. So Chiaki Kuriyama would have been killed like twice in the movie, but it would have like added another million dollars to the budget and a bunch of shooting days. And they were like, let's, let's just not, it, w- it would have like jeopardized the anime sequence and stuff. But in my mind, because I, I, I conceived of the character as twins so hard, even to this day, there's a part of me that's like, Oh yeah, I forgot they cut that. And they didn't cut it. They never fucking filmed it. Like it never right. happened. Um, but you know, Quentin scripts, uh, you know, when you read them, you kind of picture, them as they really end up being some yeah. people i've read scripts before the, the movie comes out and then i watch the movie and like i directed a cool version of it in my head and then i go see the movie and i was like eh, i wouldn't have done that you know whatever um but with quentin it's always like no that's exactly what i pictured you know like he really knows what he wants and gets it across very well i mean i would i would like to see your cut of certain things so that's that's just you know it's uh, be awful uh, this this one I thought was kind of funny that as I was saying earlier, I was trying to learn Japanese. I've been kind of diving into things. Mm-hmm. I like how the bride is on the plane from Okinawa to uh, Tokyo with the Hanzori, the, the the Hanzo sword out, like like the carry on. Like we have katana in this seat, like no stowing it away. I'm like, yo, that's that's the logic we got here. Just katanas are like your your coach here. I think Kill Bill takes place pre 9-11 i don't know if that's canon or not but i just i just sort of i just assume it's a world where the towers are still standing that's that, that actually explains away so many things in the movie <laughs> um there was so I, I i like the music a lot in this movie but there is one sequence that has music in it that i hate like oh. I actually hate it um i'm very curious it's the it's the scene when um Oren and the crazy eighty eight pull up to like Charlie Brown's spot and you have that I was like this is the surf rock like the five six seven eights 
before that. I like this oh, okay. five, six, seven, eights, but it's still, oh, because I was like, damn, bro. It's the one that almost feels like it would be something out of. I don't know the name. I'll probably put it in the show notes, but it just kind of has this. I don't like it. I don't. Oh, like it. you know what's funny is I can't even actually. I just watched the movie an hour ago. I actually can't even imagine it in my head right now because I just I, I hear I hear the Green Hornet theme. That's, that's and then sucks. I hear the fucking uh, like the the surf rock stuff. That's it's, it's I like right before you get to the surf rock stuff because they're they're walking down the hallway slow motion style, and they pan to everyone, every crazy eighty eight member that's with them. Oh wait, are you talking I, about okay? Like that piece of music that like it's been used in trailers a lot since probably. Yes, that's why I. Yeah. Hate okay. It. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's definitely one of those things. It's like. In the movie, it was fine. <laughs> like, I think when I first saw it, I didn't think it was weird. But no, like, yeah, I I feel like it's been in like truck commercials since then. So it's just like, uh, or or like, there's another uh sound thing while we're on the t- subject. Um, the the sound effect when it like locks in on on someone that is used on like TikTok a lot now. I don't yeah. remember what what trend that that, that like wow 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 like the little kind of wow thing. Yeah, that's... and I was like, oh, that's like a very common TikTok thing. I wonder how many people use that who know. And I mean, it's probably not even originally from Kill Bill. It's probably from some fucking Shaw Brothers movie I can't think of or something. Right. Um. But that's that's interesting. These kids, yeah. they have no idea. <laughs> yeah, because I've I've heard that a lot. And I was like, oh right, that's where that came from. Um. So I don't like feet. This movie has a lot of them in it. I don't, I'm sorry, the timing on it that. Is like, so many bare feet in this fucking movie. Oh fuck! I, I, I have that there, right? We we don't need to even delve into that, but I do have another funny point. I think you're gonna like later. Um, the what the bride is wearing when she's wearing her Bruce Lee fit, she has the uh, on, Onisuka Tigers on. Mm, I have yeah. the same pair. Oh, word? Yes, and I, cool. I've only worn them twice. And I was like, oh shit, these are the shoes. <laughs> Um, now when you think about the, the, the club, right? If you're, you're a patron there, you're, you know, you're, you're not perving up, but someone's perving up there. You know, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're enjoying the music. What is more terrifying, a knife fight, a sword fight or a gunfight? Like, why are they more terrifying? Yeah. You know, I feel like a gunfight's terrifying because like anyone can get hit with a straight bullet. You got to get real close to accidentally stab somebody. Uh, so I feel like if there's someone running around with a katana, uh, as long as I'm not in like within, you know, like an arm and some feet, I'm pretty good. Right. I mean, like she'd have to really, unless she threw it at me, but I, I don't know her. She's probably not going to throw it at me. I can move. You know, like, I can move. I can get out of here. Like, I feel like I'd probably be all right. If I went to a place in that, in that burp, just started jumping, I would not be that scared. I'd be like, Oh, I probably... You know what would happen to me? I would probably die because I would try to get closer to see it because I'm like, this is kind of tight. I'm never. When, 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 when am I ever going to see a lady fight a bunch of people with a sword? That's how I would die. Someone else would get stabbed and their their sword fly out of their hand and stab me, and I'd be like, "Fuck, <laughs> I'm gone." Um, I, I and this is the one thing I touched on upon rewatching it with now being 38 versus being a fucking 18 year old shithead. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't shithead, but still, um, the, the bride. It definitely has some of those maternal instincts that kind of pop up. Um, I think of, you know, sort of that that the, the scene where Vernita's kid, even though she tried to overuse that that thing, it was like, you know, my jaw pulls up the fucking pitch. I was like, look, <laughs> this reminds me of a coworker I have. <laughs> and then the, the thing with Gogo, because she's so young, it's like she is 17, you just killed a child. 
And um, even though this child was going to kill you, and specifically with that young, crazy 88 member that she spanked she with the sword. Yeah, you can see some of that uh, is definitely what I think what makes the character unique. I just want to say, I fucking, I don't think she shouldn't have been in the movie, but every time I watch the movie, I really hate Vivica Fox's delivery on the thing where she pulls the picture out, like, I beseech you on my daughter. Like, like that, The way she says that line, it's already a clunky Tarantino mouth line. And the longer you watch his movies, not everyone can do his weird cadence. You know what I mean? Like, not everyone can get it. And she just did not. And every time I see it, it's just like a wrong note in, in, in a in a choir. Like, ah, oh, hey, you fucking bring it down. It's, it's um, but I did. This is this is stupid. I, I don't know where else to put this. I'm just going to say it here is the bit where they're that you referenced earlier, where they're like, well, I mean, if the baseball diamond wear black, like the back and forth, that uh, that cadence of those lines back and forth is like identical to the key and peel sketch where they're two black guys who are ordering uh, exponentially more fake Southern food things to seem black. Like they keep going back and forth. I was like, I wonder, cause they're, they're nerds like us. Like they're right. huge nerds. I'm like, does Jordan Peele know that like, they wrote that to the cadence of your hair in a black stocking cap? Like, you know what I mean? I was like, I gotta, if I ever meet Jordan Peele, I'm going to ask him that. He's going to be like, no, what the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, he's going to be like, yes. Cause it was so like, Hey, you're me. the first person who ever noticed this. Here's $1 million. That would, that would be great. Like, here's your seed money. Um, yeah. Just you got to cast me. You're the director. Just cast me. Just just give me a chance. Uh, so I want to move into because I think it's a natural segue because it's, it's like you've done a podcast before because you're a great podcaster as well. <laughs> Thank um, you. The, so I want to I want to go into what works and what doesn't work. And specifically mm-hmm. that that sequence, most of Vernita's scenes don't work for me. Um, but we'll 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 go into that. So I want to start off with what works and, and we'll go into what doesn't work. Um, and I think a lot in your your point about which makes sense. This is his first action movie. Um, the fight choreography, I think, works. I, I think it works really well. Like you know, it's the the wire work. It it it, it just kind of works. And even when we have like Zoe Bell pop up in there, specifically that scene with cutting the um, the baseball in half when the Tori Hanzo throws it, that actually happens, and that's actually Zoe. I was like, this is great. Yeah, um, I um I, I think. The thing about it is because people always compare the wire work to like Crouching Tiger and the Matrix because it's this, you know, it's, it's Yuan Wu Ping. And um, I think I'm probably not saying his name right, whatever. Very like legendary, you know, choreographer. And the thing is, this, even though they're similar and they're similar techniques and they're similar styles and stuff, if you watch Crouching Tiger, everything is like very like ethereal and kind of like balletic. You know, and like that's like a, a very like beautiful like romance film. Like the the fighting is sort of part of the 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 relationships. And in the Matrix, everything is like distinctly unreal because it exists in a computer program, right? Like it's literally not real. It's okay that everything is like a little bit too heightened. Here, stuff is like heightened, but there's like a weight to the choreography. Like even though it's wire work, it's not like quite as floaty. And I'm doing the, the, the I'm making like stage fingers, or whatever with my hands to describe what I mean. Like, it's not quite as like uh, fluid, I guess it's a little bit more um, punchy, you know, it kind of makes it feel a little more like real. Uh, there's just more like a texture to it. I think, you know, I, I thought you were doing Scott Hall fingers for a second, you know, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're, you're, you're right. And what comes to mind when you, you mentioned that is when, 
you you have the uh, bride kind of like you know bounce herself off one of the swords that's stuck into the wall but then she has to muscle up essentially because she didn't just like bounce from the sword to the ledge she bounced from the sword to being able to lift her hands on the ledge and pull herself up yeah exactly exactly it's not like uh she doesn't just like she's not like a superhero she's not just like fl- flying around um and uh i sometimes so it always annoys me a little bit when people over compare those things I'm like they're very each of them is very distinct they're very different in, in the choreography and the way they're framed all that stuff it's like give credit to the folks that are doing it that they didn't do the one trick pony thing uh despite those movies coming out within you know a few years well, a million other people did it is the problem a million other people got choreography and they were like just make it like make it like the matrix and crouch and tiger and then like they just did that and it was not like either one I think these next two go together. Um, I like a lot of the structure of the movie, um, especially when we get to sort of like the last like 45 minutes. That is just everything that I wanted. Um, I, I like the sort of nonlinear storytelling, and that's kind of what I expect from from Tarantino. I'm like, I got to pay attention to this. Right. And I can't just really like be to the side. Um, and, and, I, and I touched on it earlier as far as the things that I think work. I think majority of the music works specifically in that um, you, you have the Green Hornet thing, that, that shit slaps, but then you have the uh, Santa Esmeralda. That's a fucking disco song that starts off a fight. And I'm like, yo, this is great. You know how many times I didn't know it was lyrics to it because I just thought it was the clapping part? And I was like, this is everything I needed. And um, lastly, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the anime sequence, I believe that people that did the anime did the same anime for Breaking the Habit, Lincoln Park. I think so, maybe. That, that I feel is, like this is something I knew when it came out that I don't remember now because I'm not as much of a weeb anymore, but I think so. That That's probably one of my favorite parts of the, the movie. It actually, for for this black soul, Dom, I, I might have had a thug tear when her parents get killed. I'm like, it's fuck this dude. It's also really good too because it sets up like one of the things about the movie, which is that like revenge doesn't exist like in a vacuum, right? Like, yeah, this girl did this to her and she needs to go kill her, but like that girl herself has experienced something similar. You know what I mean? And like this is what, how she reacted to it and stuff. And like, I think people judge Volume One as being, uh, you know, like oh, it's just like mindless, cool violence. But it's like, well, then the second one, like, it, it had just been one movie the second half of it would have been like, no, we're gonna hit you with all this other shit. Now, now you have to wrestle with this, you know? Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, that definitely is like the music in this fucking, the music. I, I like the use of music in every Tarantino movie. Like there's very few times he's done something with music that I thought was stupid or like corny. Uh, and I think it, it's easier to like when you're young because you don't know this shit otherwise. You only know it from Tarantino presenting it to you as being like, hey, here's one of my favorite records. You know, it's like your cool older brother being like, hey, this is here's this thing that I saw. Um, and as, as you get older, I think you go through like there's like two stages of when you're young, when you're young. Uh, the idea that Quentin Tarantino makes movies out of a bunch of cool different stuff is really cool to you. And you think it's a you feel like that's an original thing because it takes an original voice to synthesize such disparate elements. And then you get to like an, a snobby age where you start to not like his work and you're like, oh, he does is rip off all the old movies, blah, blah, blah. It's all just bullshit. Then you get beyond that point and you're like, oh, that's what everyone does. Every director is just ripping off all of his favorite stuff. It's just that Quentin's like the most known person who makes it very obvious what he's doing um, because he won't stop talking about it. 
but every director cribs stuff from other directors. Like that's the, the, the whole fucking, you know, people talk about Wes Anderson. Like that's someone who people consider to be original, right? Like he has a unique, distinct thing, but he's just mixing up his favorite French filmmakers, his favorite sixties music, his favorite, you know, his favorite stuff. So I've always maintained a soft spot for the way he uses music, especially in this movie. And I, and I think going back to, to that, and I, I want to hit the um, what doesn't work in a second. I think we've hit two of the main th- two of the three points I had. But yeah, I, I think when you have an opportunity to make something, whatever it is, you you are a lot of times the references that you have. A lot of things, you know, like everyone is, you know, I, I read this book still like an artist. And that's literally in there. You know, it's just like you you're the references you're you're taking from those things that you enjoy and you like those where your influences come from and then when you start getting skill you start getting taste you are maybe reformatting what that influence is and it's almost an invitation for someone it's like well you like my work you should check out this dude's work as well because this is yeah yeah it it creates a conversation um and you know that's you know be a podcaster everyone everyone in podcasting is a thief you know it's just like look i i do this uh so Here's the things I think that don't work is sort of three mm-hmm. things. Um, like like we talked about, some of um, Vivica Fox's delivery early on, just a l- little less. I, I wrote that the dialogue just felt written. It didn't feel delivered. It felt, it felt like, oh, you are saying a thing. Yeah, a lot of Tarantino dialogue is like that, but it requires like, you never get that vibe in any time Sam Jackson's in one of his movies. Sam like just gets it. Uh, there are certain people who just who just get it. Like Han, uh, I almost, almost called him Hans Landa. Uh, Christoph Waltz, who's a real person, not the uh, Nazi character he played in Glorious Bastards. He like really just gets it. You know what I mean? He just naturally kind of fits into it. Um, Vivica, not so much. I mean, there's other people that didn't too. I don't mean to single her out. It's just in this movie, it's the most obvious one. It's, it's very glaring. And I was not unhappy when she was gone. I was like, okay. Cool. And, okay. and the thing is, I thought she was in the movie a little longer. That's the thing about it. I was like, oh, you're gone in the first like 20 minutes. All right, cool. We out of here. No, she's dispensed with very quickly. But yeah, in the memory, that scene feels longer because it's like not as good straight up is, is really the thing. It's like one of the weaker scenes, I think. Yeah, the, the fight scene worked, but that sort of thing in the, in the sort of it almost had the way it was shot and the sort of fakeness of her home. It had almost one of those MTV movie award sketches. It's like a little bit like the actual production design of her home feels the least of a piece with the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like the, the colors feel a little bit off. And I think it's, I don't know if it's just supposed to evoke kind of like the set for like a PBS children's show or something. Like it's supposed to be like hyper family ass. Like you're supposed to really look at how different her life is now. Everything's colorful and kind of like soft and maybe that's on, on purpose, but I just always thought it looked kind of, kind of dumb. Maybe it is because out of that, the group of the, um, the Deadly Viper assassination squad, she's the only one that's got a kid, you know, as far as after they disbanded, after <laughs> after fucking killing the bride in their mind, and they disbanded, Oren was like, yeah, I'm doing this. Bud is doing other shit. Um, Elle is out there fucking, I don't know what she's doing. And Vernita is like, I'm going to marry a doctor. I'm going to marry Russell Wilson. And then we're going <laughs> to, and we're going to live in this happy home in the suburbs. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe that is why that's that way. Because you're supposed to feel like this, this fight to the death does not belong here. This is not where this should be happening. It should be happening at the baseball diamond. Where she coaches Little League. Which is another funny point. <laughs> I was like, it's okay. It's at 2.30 in the morning, so it's fine. <laughs> um, 
yeah, you know, we talked about the sort of the, what I felt was like the loose thread with the kid and all of that. So that's all connected. The the only other thing I thought that doesn't work, and I, even then, like, it gives me the vibe of I knew this was was whack, and it's not bad. It's fine for the movie. And it's fine for you know what they do, but it's, it's like when I watched RoboCop for the first time, or when I was younger, and I'm like, you should have shot that dude in the dick. He's a rapist. Fuck him. It, th- that's how I feel about the whole thing with Buck. And I'm like, no, this is rough. And it made me think about this larger thing of like hospitals, hospitals in this movie, right? You got like L strolling, you know, just coming with the poison. And then you got Buck just like renting out comatose, like it is sessions. It is, it is like every time I see this movie <laughs> and then we get to that part, there's a part of me that kind of forgets about it for a second. And then you're like, this is so grotesque. It's so terrible. And there are people who make movies that like show physical, you know, like rape or like, or like a woman being jumped and stuff like that. And they, they're like, we have to show you how bad it is. Cause like, you know, it's important. And you're like, no, it's fucking not. You're just whatever. Um, this movie doesn't show you a thing, mm-hmm. but the, the, the wording and like the delivery and everything is so, so uncomfortable and so disgusting and so sleazy that their deaths almost seem like not violent enough. <laughs> and I understand it because it's so early in the story that, that you can't devote like a whole 10 minutes to like her, like, you know, like uh, dicing their dicks up like she's making mirepoix or something, right? Like, I understand that like there's not time for that at this juncture in the story, but it certainly feels like there should have been. Like, if there wasn't a rated cut, it's like, oh, we have an extra 20 minutes of her just making like dick kebabs out of these guys. Um, <laughs> That's the thing that I always do when, you know, I'm watching a movie and I'm like, like my, my girl would talk about it. She already knows what my number one things are when I'm watching the movie. It's like, what time of day is it? You know, it's always that sort of thing or mm-hmm. the rest of the staff at like I've been in. Yeah, hospital I mean, never it, that's far. the implot. The implication, obviously, is it's probably like maybe like a like a crooked hospital or like maybe they put her somewhere that like, you know, Bill has tendrils there or something or whatever. But then just like the like the price is like so fucking wrong. like just feels I mean not not, not, not like there's like an acceptable price, but it's just like like <laughs> I was like that's like that's insane. Like that's that's so insane to me. Like there's every every <laughs> rung so every, every single rung of it is is so it's like, oh, okay, this is bad. She's in a coma, that's rape, that's terrible. Then it's like, oh man, like who's even stop? Who's even watching this? And then it's like $75 a pop. That feels like a weird number. Everything about it, the more you unpack it, you're just like, you find more depths of 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 just uh just grotesquerie. It's just like this is maybe humans don't deserve to live. Like maybe, like, you know what I mean? I, like maybe we should get replaced by the AI. Like this is so fucked up. When she cut his Achilles, I wanted it to say, gotcha, bitch. I wanted that to be the thing. Like, just turn into fucking well, I, I think beast and shit. I know we're sort of talking about things that are weird or not, yeah. you know, sort of like d- don't work type things. But um, this movie is really good at making you feel pain. Um, like the Achilles thing. Like, okay, I, again, I just want to be on record. I still think that she should have like, you know, diced the genitals up into like a Caesar salad or something. But for that moment, getting a knife to the uh, Achilles is like horrifying. Like you, you could, every time I see that scene, I like my, my legs kind of like flinch up a little bit. And um, when she slams the door in his head and like his body does like the fucking shiver thing, um, like you're Brian Danielson trying to remind people you have a history of concussions in a match. And um, it's, it was, I was like, this is every time I see it, like it really, really adds to it. And like, that's the thing is like, 
it, I guess the technique this is something that works really well. Like the positive, we're talking about some of the negatives is like the the details. There's like a real richness of detail uh, that I think that Tarantino just like he thought these things through, and that makes the world feel more immersive. Your I, I feel like your your brain is more willing to not wonder where the other nurses are because you you start to focus on these little things that like these little screws. Um, at least I did. I was just like, oh man, I felt that way too about the um the sound design, like the sound effects in this movie. Like when uh when the bride has um read it in like a chokehold, like you you can hear like the leather of her sleeve on her jacket, like kind of like bunch yeah. up. Um it just shit like that. I was like, this movie has a fucking incredible sound design. Uh like the whole time. And like it got like no Academy Award anything. <laughs> this movie got like no Oscar, nothing. That's some right. Baptist stuff, I guess. No buzz, no love. <laughs> Like when I was like 17, I could not understand it. I was like, not even best original screenplay. Like what the fuck? You know what I mean? Cause like Quentin, that's like his category. Uh, but the sound shit in particular is like, man, move. That's something that's missing from a lot of modern movies. It's really good sound work. I, think I don't know Warren why. Over. I think that's what happened. Huh? I think Warren Beatty sent a note over. It's just oh, like fuck. <laughs> fucking guy is doing his fucking thing. No, no love, no love. Just, you know, <laughs> I'll return it in years. Warren's uh, an icon. <laughs> So I want I want to throw out there these these sort of favorite scenes. I got like one more section after this. Mm-hmm. Um, so favorite scenes that come to mind for me, and definitely I, I want to hear yours. But um, it, it's more of a, 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 a they did the they did a better version of what I didn't like from the entrance scene for the Crazy Eighty Eight. Um, I didn't like that music. I like this music cue where Elle's walking to do the fucking nighttime assassination in the whistle thing. And I, I like that. But also I notice she's just wearing a costume the entire time. Like her jacket is drawn. I was like, is that what kind of jacket is probably like a three thousand dollar like fucking jacket but it's like it looks like it's drawn like the belt is drawn on and when she puts on her nurse fit i was like you look like a villain you're wearing like the eye patch that has the thing so cartoony yeah yes it makes me laugh and her arguing with bill makes me laugh as well notice she fucking does it i was like she's so mad uh the the best part of that scene i was thinking about this earlier is um and she's like, oh shit. And he's like, can you please lower your voice? You don't want shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, that was really funny. I was like, Daryl hated it. it. doesn't have anything as much to do in this one as she does in the other one, but it, it's really good. It's great too. Like, one of my favorite tight stock characters is like the person who's almost as good as the hero, the hero, but not as good, who's just in their shadow. And like she that's perfect for her, you know. Uh that piece of music is um it's a Bernard Herman score, but I don't remember what movie it's from. I used to know this, but my brain is mush. Uh it's from another movie though. Like uh, Quentin loves taking pieces of scores from other movies and just using them. And like nowadays, a lot of guys edit their movies that way. Like they use temp scores using scores they want to use, but then they get uh obsessed with that music and they can't use it, they can't keep it. So then they actually have composers essentially come in and like and mimic it. Which is like, and you can always tell. It's like, oh, you wanted this, but you didn't want to use that music. That's weird. So I always liked that Quentin just does that. It's like, fuck it. I want to use this piece of music in this movie. I'm going to use it. Who cares? So they Jim Johnston. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of wrestling references in this podcast. We got to get Jim Johnston uh, back in the fold somewhere, man. His his themes are so, so perfect. Uh, 
I, I want this again because I'm studying Japanese. I want this. I want to have that sequence when she lands in Japan, goes to Okinawa and pops up at his sushi shop. I want that whole fucking sequence. I need that to happen. But I want to be the Hattori Hanzo side of it. I want someone like pulling up and I'm, I'm speaking terrible Japanese. <laughs> oh, Japanese is very easy. It's like you're not speaking it well. I know, right? <laughs> but I want to be in that sort of role. I want to have a sushi shop when I'm done with podcasting. That's what that's what I want. Konnichiwa. あ、あ、あ。こんにちは。こんにちは。プリズルビート。こんにちは。ああ、フェクト。グッグッグッ。ユーセンジャパニーズワードライクユージャパニーズ。あ、ナイメイキングファンオブミー。ノノノノ、セ
when I, I think I was maybe 10 or something. I saw Pulp Fiction, maybe, maybe a little older. Um, I was like, oh, okay. Movies don't always have to go on a straight line. And now it made me kind of pay attention. I was like, I thought that dude was alive. Like when fucking John Travolta gets blicked, I was like, oh, he's dead. Shit. And, you know, and, and watching it, that, that was an observation that hit me today. Cause I, I also watched Kill Bill today of Iron One. And I was thinking about, it, I was like, nah, I think when you're watching this, it's like, how do we get here? And even leading into sort of volume two, you know, like, you know, there was a character that is killed off in the very beginning of the movie who's not in it in the first movie, but you find out like, oh, that's a prominent person in the second movie. And it's like, is that, is that fucking, is that Sam? <laughs> it's like, how are you here? Um, I, I like that there's also um, a, a handful of people who do double duty. So like Johnny Toe um, in, uh, is the head of the Crazy 88 in the first movie and then he's Pi May in the second and then um michael parks is the you know like the the sheriff or whatever and in the second one he's that uh spanish guy that's supposed to be uh, apparently bill's like adoptive dad or whatever yeah and like i don't uh, i mean i don't when i first saw it i did not know that so like i i knew the the, the johnny toe stuff but after i saw it and it, it was like oh that was the same guy that was the sheriff guy i was like the what excuse me because i didn't know <laughs> I, I, Oh, some 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 of the actors that Quentin uses who are, are from stuff from the past, like I, I I would look up and know. I guess I didn't know that that guy was like had had it like that. I know he was like that. I, I was not familiar with his game. So the first time I rewatched it, I just I watched that scene so intently. Like, okay, now I can see that it's him. But fuck, that's really good. And then um, it, and then it connects because I think the sheriff was in maybe Dust to Dawn or some other turn. He's in. I think he's in Dust Till Dawn. He's in Planet Terror too. He's in. He has like a much bigger part in Planet Terror. Um, yeah, that uh, I, th- I think he's. I think that actor's dead now. Unfortunately, he's yeah. also in uh, Kevin Smith's Red State. Yes, the main guy in Red State, I think. But he's he's really good. That I just I don't I don't, I don't even really care his name. I was like Esteban or something. But just like you yeah, need to go be, you need to go meet Bill's like you know like hot poppy or whatever, and he's just like. The little, the, the little thing. It's like part of it's like okay, technically this is like brown face, right? Like this is actually like not okay. But again, it's one of those things. Like I'll allow it. Like you know, just watch, watch your step, counselor. Like I, I, I guess uh, I should be more mad, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> yo, that's good. That's good. Um, so did you have any other things on uh favorite scenes or have you? Or do you think we got it? No, 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 no. I think we got it. All right. Um. Then lastly. I think we gotta gotta do it. But, you know, I want to I want to hit those scores, and then I want to get sort of your thoughts on, you know, your score where this fits into the you know Tarantino pantheon, and um, your film MVP, if you will. So Rotten Tomatoes, because you know they they're they've been in some hot water recently again, but um, eighty five on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's a fresh movie. Um, I always put a little interest in the Google number. I, I find that to be interesting. Google's like ninety one. In imdb.com, which surprisingly is the lowest of the three, is only an 8.2. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's a movie that, you know, people seem to like in various places that are leaving reviews. I didn't do the letterbox thing. I think it's like pretty high in letterbox. But um, so what, it, what is it has a 4.2 on letterbox? Actually, it's a very high average. Yeah. It's, uh, on, a, on a five scale. So what is your number on a five scale for, for this movie? But I want to do it in that way. So oh, okay, go ahead. So I think you'll like this. Okay. How many big toes do you give this movie? God, I thought you hate feet. <laughs> I told you I'm um, going to talk about feet again. 
<laughs> uh, this is terrible. Um, I personally hate giving things numerical scores, period. It's actually very hard for me. If you follow me on Letterboxd, almost all of my actual star ratings, there's only 20 of them. 90% of them are just ironic or like I'm just being hyperbolic. Um, maybe only a few of them are, are genuine for a very long time. The only five star movies I had on Letterboxd were Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth and Beyonce's Lemonade. So like, you know, I'm that's not even that's just that's that's the real me, you know. Um, this I would feel I feel like it's a like a four and a half. I don't I I don't think volume one is 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 five toes down necessarily, but I think it's like really <laughs> I think it's really close. I gave it the same actually. Um, yeah, it's like it's th- that that feels right. Yeah, and this this is the sort of last thing that we'll we'll close out on before we you know do the the plugs because I want to you know get your your thing out there. Uh, where does this fit? This was his uh, this was Tarantino's fourth movie. He's you know the the tenth one is coming up right. Um, so mm-hmm. of the nine that exist, where does this fit for you? I'm glad you asked that because I went and had to go to my phone. Uh, to find on Letterbox, I have a list called Dom's Definitive Tarantino Power Rankings. Right. Um, and I think the note just says, don't at me in case anyone wanted to argue. Um, I made the... Uh, something is missing. Okay, I actually made this before um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. So I still have no idea where I fit that. I've seen that like four times. I still don't really fully know how I feel about it in, in relation to the rest of the filmography. But of the nine... at the, well, He counts Kill Bill as one movie. So um, here, though, I have to have them counted separately. Of the nine that came out at that time, I have it at number six in the rankings, actually. The only things lower than it are The Hateful Eight, Volume 2, and then Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs is like my least favorite movie of his. But yeah, the last time I rewatched them, I, I've i always had the I like Volume 2 better than Volume 1 feeling that a lot of people have. Because it's the real one. It's the one that's more like a real movie and stuff. But the last time I rewatched them, I was like... Now, volume one is just too cool. It's actually too cool to deny. Uh, and and for, uh, for whatever reason, at the time, I think I just valued coolness more. Um, but people always get mad at me because my actual top five is uh, Django. Uh, Death Proof, I have it number four, which is like very close to number three for me. But number three is Pulp Fiction. Two is Glorious Bastards and one is Jackie Brown. Um, I fight for death proof to the to the death it's like i think such an important tarantino movie and people think it's the worst uh because it actually makes a very good if you're gonna do a double a, a, if you're gonna do a double feature and you don't want to watch both kill bills watch kill Bill volume one and then watch death proof because you know a big thing happened on the set of this movie obviously is that uh Uma almost got killed doing a car stunt that she did not want to do Right. Uh, and Tarantino basically like not bullied, but like manipulated her kind of into doing it and she almost died. Uh, and then the studio like refused to let her have the footage of her almost dying. Like unless she, she like signed something and um, it really soured the relationship for a very long time. It's why for a very long time, conversations about Kill Bill through are always weird because I don't think Quentin wanted to come out and go, oh, Uma does not fuck with me. We are not making that movie. He would just be like, oh, I don't know. And it's like, you know, the woman that made it fucking hates your guts and wishes you were dead. That's why you don't want to talk about it. But they, I guess, reconciled. Yeah, which is cool. Obviously, I mean, you know, people can change whatever. But Death Proof is really an entire movie about him. I think reckoning with that and like reckoning with like his guilt and a lot of things about like that and like Harvey and all that stuff. I don't think he's ever going to just come out and talk about it until maybe he's a lot older. But if you watch Death Proof through that lens, yeah. it's a very interesting movie. I think it's like one of the most important movies in his filmography. Then I'm going to have to rewatch that with that that added context. And um, yeah, I, I think. 
Kill Bill uh, Volume One is definitely for me rated higher than Volume Two. Um, I felt a little bit of a letdown for volume two, but I've watched it considerably less and I haven't seen it in a very long time. So upon rewatching it, I would imagine we would do a review of that as well. Um, but I, I think it, it's up there. It's in, it's in my, it's in my top five. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not five. It's probably like four for me. Um, but I, I don't know. It's like, Rewatching them would make a little more sense. Like I've probably seen Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill the most of, of those mm-hmm. movies. And, Pulp Fiction is probably my number two. And I've seen Django a lot as well. Django is up there as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I think I've seen um, I've seen all of the movies, actually. Um, but I've seen Jackie Brown the least. So it's like, you know, kind of diving back in, watching it. I think sometimes it's worth tapping back in, watching the movie, let's say every five years, when you've gained a new ring of the tree that is your trunk of your body, because you like know that. it's a little bit better. And um, you can kind of get those references and appreciate movies in a different way. So mm-hmm. I like that. Well, that is pretty much it for this retrospective. It's not really reviews of retrospective. We dive back into it, man. Yeah, um, we really. Yeah. So what I would like to do here um, and, you know, thanking you for coming on uh, is telefying folks where they can check you out for more of your uh, your thoughts on film and stuff. Your- oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to we're going to plug some shit. All right. Oh, time to plug stuff. Um, so, um Again, my name is Dominic Griffin. Uh, I'm a film critic. I uh, am the main film critic at the Baltimore Beat. So every time a new issue comes out, you usually have me talking about some movie in there. Uh, I also freelance at looper.com. So I do reviews for them sometimes. I have a YouTube channel called The Armchair Auteur, where I review movies. I do video essays and different stuff, movie-related content. Sometimes I talk about TV. Uh, some mostly mostly movies though. And then more recently, I started my own podcast, kind of inspired by this guy over here. Uh, it's uh, called Your Fave Film Critic, and it's just me for like an hour every week. <laughs> um, and I, I talk a little bit about what's going on in entertainment news. I usually go over every movie I watched that week, like for the week of uh, before recording. And then I usually have a section at the end where I just answer questions from viewers and listeners. Uh, there's a video version on my YouTube. Every week I upload the the full video. I mean, just making faces, I guess. Uh, and then, you know, the audio version is everywhere that you get podcasts. I, I painstakingly made sure it was on like all the important platforms. Uh, no one warned me that when you start a podcast, you're going to spend like 48 hours just being like, oh, I, I'm not a Deezer. How I got to get on Deezer? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, oh, but yeah, those are, those are the main things that I do. Uh, just this week or just uh, the, seven hours ago, we put a new episode this week. Uh, and I watched, I'm, I'm doing, uh, four episodes in a row. This whole month is horror themed, watching a bunch of horror movies and, uh, arbitrarily a couple of days ago, I watched the entire T of the Friday the 13th franchise for the first time ever in my life. I've never seen a Jason movie before. I watched them all over the course of like 48, 52 hours. Uh, so if you wanted to jump in on the pod ever, you should jump in on the episode where it's just me having the fever dream of talking about Jason Voorhees. Also, the uh, episode art is Jason Voorhees chasing Drake uh, with a machete uh, that I got out of the Bing AI uh, generator because I thought it was funny. And um, I have like 72 versions of that image because I wanted to get the best one. So, but you know, AR is uh, unethical, but it's fine if you're making fun of, uh, of movies. It's okay then. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at all new Dom. Um, on the on, on Instagram as the armchair odds for and then uh yeah just I'm all I'm all over the internet man you can find me I'm there definitely uh check out Dom's work he is a lot of fun that's why he's been on this uh podcast as much as he has and um with that 
for for the super talented Dom Griffin. I am Rob Lee saying that the, you should keep watching those movies. Um, watch Kill Bill. It's 20 years, guys. Uh, see you next time. Thank you.